0: Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big-screen blockbusters they inspire. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me as always is my good buddy Dan, Dan. How's it going?
1: It's going really, really well. I am super excited about this week's podcast. I know you have some trepidation yes. about this, but uh, it's going to be awesome. We actually find ourselves in between Guardians of the Galaxy's movie, right? And so we're actually going to try something completely different this week with a new segment that I've I've pitched to Dwayne as It Was a Comic First. Uh, we're actually going to take a look at comic book movies that most people probably would not look at and think of as a comic book movie. Very first interest entrance in this is actually a fantastic graphic novel called Road to Perdition, and the 2002 movie that was based on it.
0: Yes. This, this surprised me when you told me that this was, this was a graphic novel before it was a movie. And uh, so we read that this week. We watched the movie this week. And now in this episode, this one episode this week, we're going to give you a recap of both the graphic novel and the movie and do a face-off on it. And there's no way this isn't going to go long at all. No way possible.
1: (laughs) It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So, all right.
0: But before we do that, as always, let's talk about some comic book news. And I got an email about this earlier this week, and I wanted to talk to you about this. Marvel's shutting down Comixology Digital Comic Store. Yep. So they they emailed people. Last week, Marvel announced its digital comic app, the one run by Comixology, will be shutting down in June. Instead of users being able to buy new releases of every new comic book day, readers will be left without a solution directly from Marvel for the time being. And there was a quote. Uh, From the email that ended up in the article that said, while we are disappointed fans will no longer be able to use the app starting in June, we know many readers have built up an incredible digital library of Marvel Comics on the app. To support our loyal fans, we are making digital comic purchases made prior to May 2nd on the Marvel Comics app, operated by Comixology, available and accessible on the Marvel Unlimited app. No Marvel Unlimited subscription purchase will be required to access your previous Marvel Comics app digital comic library. Ooh, mouth full there. But so I tried using this app. The Comixology one had a terrible time with it. Could never actually read any of the digital comics in the Comixology app. And now they're going to be available through marvel unlimited even if you don't have a marvel unlimited subscription am i am i understanding this correctly does that sound like what what they're saying
1: i think that sounds correct yes that basically what appears to be happening is you know comiXology was a very sort of beloved tool for getting comic books for quite a long time for those of us especially with third-party titles and stuff like that it was really useful Amazon bought it a couple of years ago and immediately began destroying it. Like, everything they've done (laughs) has been awful. And they appear to have finally made it unusable enough that Marvel is just jettisoning themselves completely from it and giving up. Which is sad, but unfortunately it's just kind of the way. There's a couple of other new solutions coming out now, and Marvel has, of course, moved to their own app and everything like that but it is really unfortunate that amazon simply took something good and destroyed it.
0: Uh so you noted that we got some information about a new Moon Knight coming out here in in a couple months kind of coinciding uh with the 25th issue of the current
1: run of Moon Knight. Tell us about that, Dan. Yeah, it looks like so first off, they're going to have a a an uppriced, super size issue number 25 of Moon Knight. Jim McKay's writing the whole thing, three different artists. It is going to not be the last issue. He did make note of that. So Moon Knight's yes. continuing on. But that's great. It's also sort of spinning off because one of those stories is going to actually introduce the Silver Scarab character from the te- television show into the Marvel Comics universe proper. And then that character, Silver Scarab, is going to spin off into her own uh, series after that. So Layla's going to then become a character in the new, uh, what was that one called? It's called Moon Knight City of the Dead. Written actually by David Popose, somebody who I've read a bunch of stuff, kind of indie stuff by. Really good writer. I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what he brings to the table with that book. So, all very cool.
0: That That is really something that we had a character from the TV show that is now making their way into the comics and not the other way around, which is typically oh. how, how that stuff is going. But I, I love it. I think this is fantastic. I thought it was a very interesting character in the fact that Layla didn't really become the uh scarlet scarab until that last episode um mm-hmm. really means that we didn't get much of that character and and so this is an opportunity at least in in book form that we can continue to learn a little bit more about
1: the character so trivia by the way probably the most famous television inspired character to make it into comic books in the last 20 or so years any idea Oh gosh, I do not know. Harley Quinn I think is generally the oh, the biggest yes, one cuz she actually sense. debuted in uh in the animated series and then came out of that into uh into the regular DC universe and then took over the DC universe. So there Sure. You go. Yeah,
0: no that makes that makes total sense. I think I had heard that but I didn't yeah. remember it. Often it doesn't
1: happen very, very often sense. though, you're right. It's very unusual. No.
0: So looking at what's available in marvel unlimited this week there is a new number one that's available called wasp number one fashion designer businesswoman founding adventurer janet van dyne has worn many hats over the course of her superheroic career but when an old enemy threatens janet and her fellow wasp nadia seemingly against his will the van dyne's will have to confront the ghosts in their storied history to get to the bottom of the mystery. So this, this is a, got a really cool cover uh, written by Al Ewing. Um, seems like a, a, a pretty interesting story to potentially uh, dive into this week. If you're looking for something new.
1: Yep. And of course, Nadia is the daughter of Hank and his first wife. So it's a little bit weird. She's kind of like a Hope Van Dyne analog, but uh different from the comics but yeah so that should be interesting it's always kind of cool getting a chance to see how um how some of these characters kind of spin out into new things so
0: sure other there's some other new books including three spider-man books are available this week new spider-man books available this week spider-man double trouble number three spider-man the lost hunt number three and Deadly Neighborhood Spider number four, Deadpool, Namor, Punisher, and Hulk also have some books that are now available this week on Marvel Unlimited. So yep. lots of interesting stuff there if 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 you're looking for something new. Absolutely. Speaking of looking for something new, Dan, do you have a recommendation for us this week?
1: Yeah, so this just kind of ties into what we're gonna be reading and watching this week. We're in crime comics mode and so this week's recommendation actually is something called *The Ghost in You* by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, *Road to Perdition* is actually a standalone crime graphic novel in the truest sense. It wasn't published first as pamphlets; it just came out as a full story in in book form. And similarly, *Ghost in You* is standalone graphic novel. It's set in the Brubaker Phillips Reckless universe, and they've now started doing this instead of publishing things as comics they're just bringing them out as hardcover full graphic novels uh maybe a couple a year or something like that really good stuff books are fantastic the protagonists will drive you crazy with their terrible decisions though they are true like film noir type (laughs) protagonists they have drug problems they have bad decision problems they have violence uh sort of you know they make unnecessarily violent decisions and and decisions that not only wreck their own lives and other people's but they're fascinating to watch the train wrecks as they happen so plots really intricate and twisty as anything you'd ever read highly recommended
0: okay that that sounds really interesting we will have a link to that in the in the show notes so you can check it out if that interests you but let's move on to the main topic at hand. We have a book and a movie to get to. Dan, let's let's start by talking about the the graphic novel, *Road to Perdition*. This entirely new graphic novel to me. I, I was not familiar with this before we started. Give us a little bit of a recap of uh, of what we read uh, in in
1: in the graphic novel. Sure. So. Road to Perdition actually is a 1998, uh, sort of, like noted, just original graphic novel. It was written by Max Allen Collins. It is drawn by Richard Piers Rainer. It's about 300 pages, black and white. And it follows the story of sort of a, uh, a man and his son on a crime spree across the Midwest, sort of. Uh, Dur- during the Depression during, era of the yep, early during 30s. the Great Depression, yes. like uh, 1930, 1931 area, and it's it's yeah. the traditional tragic backstory with uh, people sort of forced into situations that they don't want. So, you want to start out with kind of a uh, just an overview of the story, or should we talk a little bit more about how it got created yes. first, or just start in with the story?
0: Uh, I guess, however you would la- however you'd like to discuss this.
1: Let's just go ahead and and give folks an idea of what the story was, in case you have not yet read it. I, by the way, um, gave Dwayne my copy of Road to Perdition, was able to go down and just get another copy at the library. So if any of you are interested in reading this, probably there's a good chance your local library does have a copy of this, because it is uh, a kind of a classic of the genre at this point, so they're, they're out and about. But... This is a story that's actually told in the first person by somebody named Michael O'Sullivan Jr. And he is the son of an enforcer for the Looney Mob, which is a real-life gang, actually, that operated in sort of the the eastern Iowa-Western Illinois region during the Great Depression. Turns out that Michael Sr. was actually betrayed by the gang after his son sneaks into his car when he's going out on a job and witnesses his dad and looney's son actually participating in a gangland killing looney's attempt to kill sullivan by essentially hiring another gang to dispatch him fails but while he is being attacked looney's son somebody named connor actually goes to his house and murders his wife and his youngest son now michael jr is actually away at a party when this happens when o'sullivan returns home he finds his wife and his youngest son dead and his his older son there saying you know it was the loonies that killed mom and and our brother together what happens then is they head out on the run leaving town On their way out of town, they stop at the Looney Mansion, find out that nobody's home except a lawyer and a few gunsels. He kills some people and finds out that in actual fact, Connor has actually not only been solely responsible for his family's death, but he has been put into hiding. And so he says, you know, I want to kill the guy who killed my family. They say you can't have him. And so he declares war on the Looney family. So. Maybe we maybe we stop there with just the intro to give you a. How did the setup to this go for sure. you? Sure. What did you What did you think of the start of Road for It
0: It
1: was quick,
0: and it was it like everything happened very fast. It was like there was I was I guess expecting a little bit more of a introduction, but you basically just kind of dove into the deep end of the pool yes. right away. You kind of weren't introduced in the first, first couple pages to loonies to, to Michael Sullivan senior, who, who has got the nickname, the arch angel of death. And uh, y- you find out real quick that he's, you know, he, he's a mob enforcer and that he's working for a crime family. And they're all kind of in cahoots with Capone in Chicago and all this sort of thing. And, and, you know you see the kid jump in the back of the car because he wants to see what his dad does because neither peter nor his brother michael really know what their dad does and you know he just is a real quiet type and and uh you're like something bad's gonna happen and sure enough something does in fact go bad he sees the whole thing and I think you also kind of get the feeling right away that Connor Looney is a bit of a recluse, and he is going to be trouble. This is not going to sit well when he finds out that this kid is has witnessed what Connor and Michael Senior have done. And uh, yeah, it, it's a great setup. I am not really a person that like enjoys mobster sort of movies but this is a very well set up. Story. And it is
1: interesting that the start of it is drawn with really broad strokes and really quickly, but I think you very you very easily understand exactly what's going on and the consequences and everything. And it does just sort of propel you into the story. When we talk about the movie in a little bit. Yeah. The movie takes a lot more time setting up relationships and Mm -hmm. introducing you to the characters and everything in this one it's just sort of like boom you're just dropped in and you go so once they leave town they then immediately take off and the idea is and this is how the title of the book comes from is that they're going to take the son the dad is going to take his son to perdition kansas which is where his his dead wife's sister lives so that He can go there and be safe while the dad takes care of some business. On the way there, they stop in Chicago because he wants to talk to the Capone family, find out exactly what's going on and what side they're on in all of this. So when they get there, he goes into the building. He goes up and talks to Capone's main man. uh, And the whole thing ends in a massive shootout where he kills like 15 Capone henchmen we start to find out in this that he really is sort of like the guy who's the boogeyman that other assassins worry about, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He he, he reminds me of John Wick. <laughs> you know, the way, the way they talk yep. about John Wick in the John Wick films is it's exactly like this. It, so if you picture that sort of thing, and he, and he does, he just sort of like he goes there with the intention of just like, I'm not here to attack Capone or what your guys are trying to do, but you are holding Connor Looney who killed my wife and son. And I'm not going to stand for that. So you should turn him over and I'm going to make things hard for you. If you don't do that. And they're like, Hey, business is business. We understand you're hurting, but you know, the loonies, we've got to kill you.
1: And then, he, uh, he uses like a, yeah. some sort of memo holder or something. And the like, cause he goes in unarmed essentially and somehow still, it is very John. Wick right. And in fact, I talked to my wife when we were watching, I'm like, this is so much like, you know, a John Wick only more reasonable. Cause it's not a dog that he's going after these people for it's, they killed it. They killed his right. family. You know, right. I'm a hundred percent on board that, that this makes sense. But even like the, the way it just Mm -hmm. moves from one sort of interaction to another, the early part of this is very John Wick. Um, So after the shootout, he actually um, goes in and, you know, he hops out of there. The son is, is in the car with a gun just in case, but doesn't have to, they, they drive out of town. He then finds another place, talks to a lawyer, ends up getting in a big gunfight there uh, where he's, he's trying to get evidence against the loonies he actually does end up getting some evidence gives it to elliot ness actually as well so another sort of real world character that they that they've got there ness goes to new mexico and arrests looney senior and while he's sort of you know going through there they now are driving around the midwest operating as bank operator bank robbers but they're robbing banks and specifically saying we only want the dirty money and they're like do you know who you're robbing and what if they find out and he's like let me tell you my name it's 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 o'sullivan let them know exactly what i've stolen from them right so he's going around Uh essentially just daring them to catch him and trying to impose as much financial hardship on the looney clan and the capones as possible To make it so that it actually costs them more to keep Connor Looney from him than to just give him to them, right? Um, Eventually, that just doesn't seem to work because they start taking their money out of the banks or staking out the banks. So he finds a big gambling boat that's sort of the Looney's main source of income. Goes on that kind of sneaks on with some disguise, which I found a little weird because he somehow made himself look like he was about eighty years old. But yeah. it's a comic book, right? It um, <laughs> he did. It he did. Manages to burn that whole thing to the ground and steal all their money on the way, and then at that point, Needy, who is actually again a real world figure, who's the second was second in command to Capone during most of the thirties, actually agrees. He's like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna let you have him. Connor's going to be coming out of this hotel room at a certain time. Uh, He walks out. The angel shoots him dead. uh, And then after killing him, Michael and Michael Jr. then get in the car. They head off to Perdition, Kansas to deliver him to his aunt. When they get there, the couple is dead. And there's actually still one gunsaw waiting there who kills Michael. At which point, Michael Jr. actually kills him by shooting him. Uh, right in the doorway after he kills his dad, which is technically the second time that he is killed in the book because he also um, shot one person during one of the other raids they did. So with that over, though, he drops the gun, is sent off to an orphanage, and ends up actually uh, turning into a priest for his vocation later on. So there's a lot of religious... Um, sorts of of elements to this that we'll talk about but his father is this very weird combination of super violent and very religious and sort of repentant of his sins so it makes some sense that he would end up there yes but that's the comic
0: that that is and it is it is it, it, I was surprised at how quick a read it is. There is not a lot of words to this, to this book actually. It, it reads very fast, and um, yeah, it just mm-hmm. action, action, action too. There's just a lot of action throughout this whole the whole. Yeah, book.
1: there's times where I mean, like I said, it's 300 pages, but I've read it in a few hours, n- numerous times it it feels a lot almost like a manga to me where it reads incredibly quickly there's there are some pages that have hardly no actual dialogue or or text on them and it just seems like like it really does just you breeze through it a lot faster than most american like western type comic books so I don't know if the fact it's black and white helps in that. Yeah. I think it sometimes does because black and white also the lack of all the splashy color and everything tends to make things move a little faster for whatever reason as well. I don't know, but in any case, fantastic stuff. Um, what did you think were some of the main elements about this that really interested you or the thing in the comic itself when you first read it? Cause you read the comic, Before you watch the movie, right?
0: Correct. So, I actually, I mean, I knew nothing about the story going into it. And so, like, it was a surprise to me that it was a kind of a gangster thing. But I would, one of the things that I thought was interesting was kind of the, some of the real world Mm -hmm. elements. You had Capone and Frank Needy, you had, you know, a lot of, um, Things about like the just the depression and stuff like that that were that were very obvious in 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 this book and and uh so it kind of almost grounded it for me as well and and made it really feel i think even more real than than it already kind of does because in spite of the fact that it only has 300 pages and because and even though those a lot of those pages read really quickly it feels like a very yeah, ground absolutely story. I, I
1: think it it seems incredibly realistic in a lot of ways even though especially some of the violence like the idea that one guy would be able to walk into the the chicago mobs main location and somehow survive uh, yeah. seems very unlikely and and i think that it makes sense that they changed some of that in the movie right. but But it's comic books, so you get some of that. Mm -hmm. And it is sort of that very John Wick, over-the-top sort of, of even though this is not superhero, this guy's about as close to being some sort of a, you know, super-powered gangster as as you're likely to get. There's a few times where he's sliding down banisters, guns blazing, that sort of stuff, doing some stuff that seems unlikely. But overall, it's really kind of this cool story of a man and his son trying to take this sort of almost like winding trip across the Midwest for a summer while they're trying to stay alive while the dad is getting vengeance. And the boy is learning to drive and kind of learning a little bit more about his dad and learning, you know, probably some things he probably shouldn't be about how to, uh, you know, how to be a hitman for the mob and that sort of thing so it's a it's a cool story though i think that it makes sense how it got turned into a turned into a movie as quickly as it did after being adapted uh it seems like there's a a strong sort of like basis for for a a motion picture here i do think it's weird how some of the things got changed you know they did they did keep some of it you know this is about honor it's about betrayal it's about vengeance kind of that that you know starting out michael is very very dedicated to the family right especially to the father um in the family so he's he is there for the loonies and does pretty much whatever is needed in the comic it's actually the leader the, the father of the looney clan that's the one that betrays him by sending the note to essentially ask the other gang to kill him. But it's his son. Who's the one that on his own goes and kills his family. So when he's talking to Elliot Ness, he actually says, you know, Looney's an old man. I prefer to see him die slowly in prison, living with the knowledge that his son died violently. And Ness is like, Connor, Looney killed. When did that happen? And all Michael says is soon soon. Right, so he's just he's declaring that this guy's gonna know his son died <laughs> yeah. because he knows he's gonna make him dead. Right? Um, they didn't do the the nest subplot at all or anything along that, so that that line and some of those other things got lost. So, so I think it's a lot about you know the betrayal and and vengeance. I also think there's a lot about religion in it.
0: There is, there is, there there's countless mentions of. Michael Senior, they're they're in addition to you know going town to town and robbing banks and, and and you know trying to stick it to Capone. They're talking about going to all these churches and and, and these priests that are basically white as sheets as they come out of the confessional after Michael Senior has gone in there to confess his sins, and, and he has to keep doing this because he keeps sinning over and over again. And has to, you know, ask for absolution. And it is it is it is quite something.
1: And he's a weird character because he's religious, but he's also very realistic in that when they first need to, or when he first goes to sort of attack the loony house after the family's been killed, he tells Michael, if I don't come out in a half hour, head to, like, the Presbyterian church or whatever. That's, yeah, And and Mike, right. and the kid's like, well, why not go to the father at our church? And he's like, that church was built by Looney Money and the father took a trip to Rome last year on his dime. So he is very, he's very understanding of the corruptions that the church has within the real world, even while being deeply faithful himself. So there's a lot of weird layers right. to that guy, you know?
0: Yeah. And you, you just also sort of see, again, it kind of based on real life, you see kind of the the reach that a crime boss can have. And it goes places you wouldn't even suspect it to go, like the church and that. And so you have to you have to be like Michael Sr. knows who he can trust and who he can't trust. And so he's sending his son to to the father he can trust as opposed to the one he knows he can't
1: and interestingly again from a historical standpoint the looney family actually did have as it shows in the in the book their own newspaper and they actually used the newspaper to print sort of gossip and sometimes outright lies against other people in the, the town that they would then use as blackmail so that they would sometimes say, you know, we're going to yeah. print this unless you do this. So they they actually had a newspaper that became the instrument of sort of their crime family as well. So.
0: Right. They they were talking about like going to uh speakeasies and stuff with can, with a cameraman mm-hmm. and like catching them when they're walking out and kind of tipsy and, this scantily clad woman would go up and like plant a kiss on his cheek and they'd take a picture and then, you know, blackmail him so that it wouldn't appear in the newspaper and all this sort of thing. It was, it was, it was really quite something.
1: No, I I think it was, it was cool that there's evidently somebody called uh, BJ Elsner, who was sort of a, a cultural and, and regional historian who does a lot of things with Chicago and Illinois history. And, and or illinois history i suppose i should get that right um and wrote books that talked about the the looney crime family and so a lot of that is some of the stuff that was adapted by the you know by collins when he did the graphic novel to kind of give it some verisimilitude, and i think did a really nice job of it
0: So you talked about the art. The art is black and white. There's it. It's I. I think it's it's interesting because I think what I would say about the art, it part of it was I had a little trouble following because a lot of the people I thought kind of looked somewhat similar to one another, and it was hard to distinguish people from one another. I would also say that like some of the newer comics that we're seeing now like starting in kind of even in the nineties and into the, into the two thousands, it felt like there was more of a movement to the, to the, to the images. These felt very like static, almost like pictures of just like a frame in time. And, and there wasn't a lot of, I guess, movement within the panel. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say there? Do you under, does that make sense?
1: I completely understand what you mean. There are times where it looks like this is a series of still photographs more than it is actual yes. like like kinetic energy moving from panel to panel. A lot of times it does seem right. like and and there's a few times where he definitely does have really violent energy moving from panel to panel. But overall these these seem to be more like Like, particular images that are just assembled as storyboards almost more than as a a flowing comic.
0: Yeah. That
1: said, the images are beautiful. And I love the way it tells the story. I think that even though they're black and white. Sure. And the black and white in some ways adds to it because it's a 1930s sort of, you know, gangster movie type of, of comic book there is something about them that really does have a an old world classic highly stylized sort of feel i think that you know for folks who are are comic readers from from my generation uh howard chaykins art is something that kind of comes to mind where he also has a very stylized sort of almost overproduced kind of feel in some ways that nonetheless is a lot of fun. I will say that the faces did bother me as well. I had times where, especially with Michael Senior, I had a tough time figuring out what exactly I w- who exactly he was. It almost seemed like he was modeling him off of like a Warren Beatty sometimes, modeling him off of an Al Pacino sometimes. The facial structure of the character just seemed to morph around. And it made it hard to really follow that character for me.
0: Sure. I'm going to tell you the thing that the, that from an art standpoint and story standpoint that I did not understand is when Michael senior gets shot in perdition, I had no idea who that person was because like he goes to perdition. He to drop off Michael jr. And he goes into the house both both his, you know, his wife's sister and 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 her husband are dead. And then just all of a sudden there's a guy's face, shoots him, and he's like, Oh, you're nothing. I heard you're just this great, you know, uh the you're the angel of death and you were a piece of cake to kill. I'm like, where did this guy come from? I don't know who he is. Where did he, you know, where did he come yes. from? Was I supposed
1: to know who that I don't character was? So. I mean I I know who he is after okay. watching the movie. Okay. Right? But I think they just filled sure. that out. I sure. don't to my knowledge, there is no particular place where we've got a we've got a good indication of who it was that was being sent, like, you know, this guy is the is the 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 Uber archangel of death that's sent after the Archangel of Death, right? Yeah. No. As as far as I can tell, right. he's just sort of a another hired gun that was sent to to take out or stake out that that farm and uh, yeah that sure. bothered me as well yes because because
0: yeah cause, because throughout the novel Michael senior is calling perdition and and basically saying he, he asks he talks about are there crows on the fence and he's and basically what he's asking is are there people there waiting for nope. us to show up? And and so that's the code. And they're like, nope, there's, there, there's crows, there's crows out there. It, you'll, you're, you're going to want to stay away. And so they keep doing this, keep doing this. And so presumably it's just one of those people. But I just, I was like, totally sort of lost when this guy just sort of, shoots him and is like oh you're nothing i thought you were this big deal and you're yeah, yeah you're
1: no really to not. my knowledge it he that character is not particularly well explained it almost it almost feels to me like what it what it really means is that there was always going to just be some faceless guy with a gun that was after him because of what he'd done and so it was just going to happen right so yeah but but as yeah. far as it goes it's very unusual to have the main character cut down essentially just by some random that gets thrown in at the end i think he's i think he's basically killed everybody off i would assume that probably it's someone sent by the capone syndicate to clean things up that even after giving him what he wanted he still had stolen God knows how many thousands of dollars from them and murdered a bunch of their people. And Capone just couldn't let that stand. So. Sure.
0: So, so one last thing I just want to say about the book is this book is incredibly violent. I mean, there, there, this is not, this is not a story. I think I would feel comfortable giving, uh, to someone until they're in the, in oh, their sure. teens or at oh, least yeah. preteen, because there is, there is lots of violence and and it, it's, it's fairly graphic. And, and even in the black and white look and feel, it still comes across as
1: oh, yeah Well, and I mean that this is obviously a, a book that's, you know, there's, there's a lot of times where you, you hear them talk about, you know, comic books for mature readers but usually that means for people who are technically like, right. you know, adolescent in terms of it's for sex and it's for, you know, violence. this is an actual something written for grownups. It's a it's a story that talks about sort of violence and its results and how somebody can live that life where they are trying to, you know, I mean, I, I think that Michael's a very complex character. You know, that he, he really believes he's going to go to heaven yes. because he gets to a church and asks for forgiveness before dying after killing people again, you know? So, yeah, right. I would agree. I
0: So, yeah, I, I just as we're transitioning into the film um, and talking about the film, I've got some film facts here we will talk about. But one, one of the big things is I think you can watch the film with a much younger like a more of a full family sort of thing. I think the I think the children watching the movie can be younger than the children reading the book. I guess is where I'm coming. To from. an
1: extent, although there's a couple of additional things like the photographer that kind of make it yeah. squeegee as far as that. But yeah, yes, I oddly, I would say that Road to sure. Perdition the graphic novel is far more violent then and and also far darker in terms of the michael character because one of the things i think we'll talk about is he kills two people in the book and and he remains more innocent in the movie
0: all right let's let's dive in and let's talk about the film here and i'm going to give you some film facts like we normally do when we do a movie review uh, for Road to Perdition the tagline for the film was pray for Michael Sullivan that's that's not a typo. we'll talk about that that name change in a minute. This movie was released July 12, 2002 has a runtime of 117 minutes. It had a box office worldwide take of 181 million dollars. domestically it it earned just over 104 million dollars. so it actually did much better domestically than it did. Uh, internationally which uh, with some of the superhero movies tends to be backwards the the international market ends up being uh, a much larger take budget for the film 80 million dollars imdb rating of 7.7 out of 10 Uh, this movie stars tom hanks daniel craig jude law jennifer jason lee stanley tucci tyler hoakland and Paul Newman. It was directed by Sam Mendes with a screenplay credit of Max Allen Collins, Richard Pierce Rayner, who did the book and David self uh, with, with the first draft of, of the screenplay jumping in and talking about the movie. The first thing that after getting done with the film, I thought this was a very faithful not exact but in the spirit of the graphic novel i mean there were there were small details that were changed and then there was an entire character that was created uh for the movie that wasn't in the book and um but it still very much felt like the book when it was all said and done and and uh, to me i think that that's the biggest thing is does it feel like the book when you're watching, when when you're watching the movie, and and I think they did a really good job of that.
1: Yeah, i i have some I have some quibbles with the decisions made on certain characters and the like, but yeah, as far as the you get done and you you think about the two of them, this is very much everything you could probably hope from an adaptation if you're the writer. In that most of the main ideas got through, most of the themes got through. Characters are still recognizable as themselves. So, and it was a heck of a good movie. So, there you go.
0: Yes, yes. So, the, the major difference between the, the graphic novel and the film is that Michael Sullivan Jr., which is, they they shortened O'Sullivan to Sullivan. Michael Sullivan Jr. can and does kill, along with his father during the spree. He grows up, becomes a priest in the graphic novel we don't we don't get we don't know for sure that that's what happens here the narration uh from the book is is from kind of an older version of Ma- michael o'sullivan mm-hmm. junior after he's become a priest many years later he's sort of looking back on it he talks about the accounts of what happened he's like he he talks about the fact that it's like well, here's what I've read about what happened, but knowing my father as I did, here's what I think happened. And then this uh, that's what you see in the graphic novel. Here it was like uh, several months later, it, it seemed like you were getting kind of a, you know, a, a 12 or 13 year old boy's look back at what he did over the mm-hmm. summer with his dad and, and, and how that how that was complicated and, and, and really sort of, uh, you know, different than I guess what most kids have during during their summer with their dad, yep. of course. So it was it, it was different, but again, close enough that it didn't it, it didn't it, it didn't bother necessarily.
1: Yeah, there were like like I guess if we if we just start from the beginning. The, the main initial difference is, I think, kind of like we referenced, there's a massive additional amount of character development about the father and the family and about the relationship between what is now not called the Loonies, but it's called the Roonies, the, the, the crime family, right. and the Sullivans, where we see that Sullivan actually yes. was sort of abandoned as a child and was essentially raised by Rooney. And it's pretty obvious early on that Rooney really considers Michael Sullivan to be his actual son or his best son. And his actual son, Connor is yeah. kind of the, you know, the goofball that's always causing him trouble. And he's, he's essentially the the son in John Wick pretty much. Right. The guy who's just going to get everybody killed yeah. by being a moron. Yeah. And so, yes. in the movie, you have a far more sympathetic character played by Paul Newman in Rooney Sr. than you have in the book. Because he's somebody who, yeah, throughout the entire movie, he's trying to find a way for Michael not to get killed. Whereas on like page 12 of the book, Rooney's like, yeah, I'm going to just have to kill him because he saw something he shouldn't have so the uh there's a big difference there but in terms of the way it kind of all works out a lot of it's similar what what did you think of paul newman's performance of of the rooney character
0: i thought i thought i thought it was great i like i'm not i'm not a big paul newman fan i haven't seen a lot of his movies in fact paul newman in this was his last on screen performance live live action performance uh was this film and and like i i didn't recognize him necessarily at first he he looks a little bit different uh, he was apparently like the producer's number one and really only choice to play sure. john rooney for this film and and i thought he did a fantastic job and to your point talking about kind of the michael sullivan being the son he'd ever had I, I remember them down in the basement of the church when when sullivan comes and 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 confronts john rooney at church and says i want to talk to you and wants to present him with the evidence that connor's been skimming money off you know and it's not and it wasn't that you know one of his lower henchmen were stealing and he, and he basically says you know this doesn't change anything you I'm not going to turn over my only son mm-hmm. to you so that you can kill him and then he he goes well I'm not going to stop and then Newman says something to the effect uh, or he's like what a, he's like Hank says well what are you going to do then you know because I'm not going to stop and he says I'm going to mourn the yep. son I lose so he knows he knows Connor's going to die or he knows Michael Sullivan's going to die. One of those two is going to die, and he's going to mourn whomever it is that does, in fact, end up dying.
1: And he actually was... Very, very powerful. And, and he was nominated. You know, wh- No surprise, Paul Newman went out on top. Um, he, he actually was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for this one, and I think fantastically deserved it. Uh, just the cast overall in this was pretty magnificent not only that you have great actors at the end of their career but you have great actors at the beginning of their career and just all the way through plus tom hanks who at that point was the yeah. top actor in movies right so.
0: <laughs> yes yes uh i i was reading the credits as we as you go into the movie and you see like okay tom hanks is in this all right this is going to probably be a pretty good movie and then all of a sudden you see daniel craig you see jude law you see stanley tucci it's like these are some big name actors and and jennifer jason lee has done a lot of work as well it 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 was amazing to me the the cast for this film and and they all do a fantastic job daniel craig is connor rooney in this pulls off being the kind of cuckoo crazy just I'm going to get everyone killed because I keep doing stupid things yep. over and over again uh as, as good as anybody and and you know Stanley Tucci is as Frank Nettie w- was fantastic as well kind of doing that whole you know Capone's not going yep. to allow you to do this he you know they make us a lot of money he do, he just he do, he play, portrayed exactly what I would have expected based on what I saw in the book it was just it was just it was just fantastic. Yeah.
1: Everybody did a great job. The the overall screenplay, I think, was really strong as well. There were, like I said, a few things that I would have liked to seen. There also were a few things that I'm surprised they didn't do, like burning down the the gambling boat and stuff. You'd think that would have been a a, a big river boat, cinematic yeah. kind of thing to do. But they did seem to shy away from making it a movie that was really a big action piece and whenever they had a decision to make about whether this is going to be about expressed cartoony violence or whether it's going to be about implied violence and the sort of results and and consequences of it they went more towards that realistic side and so you don't have the big shootouts and the like even at the end where where you do have a shootout he basically just stands in a in a darkened uh, sort of of shop window and mows everybody down from a ways away, rather than some sort of high noon type gunfight where everybody's jumping through slow motion matrix style or whatever. So it it's a very subdued action movie, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the violence sort of occurs off screen as it were. It, you, you don't see it directly. It, very much not like John Wick in that regard. It, yeah. it is, it is. Absolutely. It, you, except for, except for Connor's like execution of Finn right at the very beginning that, that Michael Jr. Witnesses, uh, yep. you know, through the bottom of the, the like the little hole uh Outside of that, even like when Sullivan finally does track down and get to Connor and shoots him, he's in the bathtub. You don't see it, but then kind of the door kind of closes, yep. and then there's a mirror see, on like, the door.
1: The,
0: yep, you know the hole and yeah, the mirror on the door, and you see Craig with a with a hole in his head, sort of sort of thing. So it you, you see it, but you don't really see it, and so it, it's yep. very that's, that's very...
1: kind of like a, it's it's like the first act of john wick and then it wildly diverges from from the way that that those the other <laughs> yeah goes. so the the other so
0: the biggest one of the other big differences is the jude law character this maguire the 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 hitman that capone uh frank netty basically hires to try and track down uh Sullivan what a swarmy swarmy character played to perfection by jude law they they i was reading about kind of the way they wanted him to look and they talked about how physically imposing tom hanks can be because he's a tall guy and broad-shouldered and be there they wanted him to kind of look like a rodent almost and so he has a real pale complexion he's got kind of a receding hairline his teeth when you see him in the diner and the two are talking and, and you see his teeth that are all sort of, you know, all look like they haven't been brushed in like five years or something. And they just, they just look terrible. And you're just yep. like, Ugh. and, and, and he's, so he's this assassin guy, but he also is like this, this for hire, like uh, news uh, photographer. And what's strange is, is he's, taking pictures of dead bodies which is really weird because he's also a hitman and somehow he ends up you know being at the place where the person gets killed like before or like as the police get there and then and then can get these pictures and in fact you have the one scene when you first see him he goes in and you see this this guy has raped this guy has killed this other guy who who raped his wife and, and you see this giant knife sticking out of his chest. And he's like going and taking pictures of it. And then like the guy starts coughing up blood and starts moving. And there's nobody there. And he goes and grabs a handkerchief and basically a- asphyxiates the guy to make sure he's dead so that he can keep yep. taking pictures. Just a, just a nasty character. Just yes. a nasty and character. And
1: it is weird because a completely new character who is essentially turned into this important way to drive the plot forward because he becomes the one that's chasing them that lets them not go to the the farm and in purgatory initially and start wandering around and then also you know is sort of across the street when he goes to kill the uh, kill one of the other guys or Connor yeah. or uh, and the like the accountant uh, yeah the accountant and so he's kind of this MacGuffin that's just there whenever there's a, a need for the plot to kick forward they they sort of throw him in to, to mess things up so but I like the character I, I think it was weird and, and, because he's almost like a a cartoony element though in it because of the whole taking pictures of dead people and doing all this other stuff and everything it is a little interesting
0: yeah it's any any i i think he does a good job of kind of amping up the tension because there's the like you already know the things that michael sullivan is doing are are kind of on the edge like morally and ethically they're very kind of <laughs> yeah. off the edge and it's like well what's the way that yeah. we could tamp this up even more let's let's throw this like really swarmy swarmy other hitman guy that's in there that's going to make this even more of a dice or well, and, sort of and he's
1: obviously someone who sort of enjoys his work whereas Sullivan does not enjoy his work either in yeah. the book or in the movie he's somebody who does what he feels he needs to because the family's been good to him, and now he—he he only knows how to do one thing, and this is how he, kind of, you know, takes care of his family and repays the—the uh, the things that have been done for him. And then when that breaks down and he's betrayed, he—he he just sort of also feels this is this is what he has to do. But yeah, I mean, at the end, he's got like the the weird little staples all over his face from the damage that was done to his face, uh, previously by Sullivan and he really does it it actually almost ties in max collins wrote dick tracy for a long time and this guy seems like a dick tracy bad guy to me in a long in in a lot of ways like one of those people who just looks like this kind of caricature-ish sort of element of a bad guy but anyway
0: but I, I i liked actually that that was the guy that ends up confronting him in perdition right because then yes. it makes a lot more sense right i will it, agree it was with like, that once you once you watch the film and suddenly it's like they get to perdition i'm like oh gosh the family's gonna be dead some rando guy is going to kill him no the family's not there but but mcguire is there and, and you see Tom Hanks, he's staring out the window, he's looking at his son, playing with the dog on the beach, and then all of a sudden, boom, boom, he's shot. And then out comes the camera, and you're like, oh gosh, no, mm-hmm. Sullivan, you just had the big scene where you got you finally got your revenge on Connor, you took him out, this was supposed to be the end, the happy ending, even though you don't really deserve it, you get the happy ending, but no. Now you've got the swarmy guy over top of you. And then Michael comes in and he pulls the Michael Jr. Comes in. The boy comes in with the gun. And I'm like, are they going to actually have him shoot him? Are they going to, because he hasn't been able to shoot anybody all film. Mm -hmm. You know, he's held the gun. He doesn't want to shoot. That's not who he is. And then Hanks in his, like his dying moments pulls out a gun from behind his back and shoots shoots Maguire in the back when he's yep. trying to convince Michael Jr. to take the gun. And it's like, this was a really more powerful and impactful scene than just what was in the comic or in the graphic novel.
1: Yep, it really was. And it is also, though, really a callback in a lot of ways to classic like gangster movies of the 30s Because there used to be a thing called the Hayes Code. I don't know if you're familiar with that from the back in the days of of early movies. But the Hayes office was sort of the censorship office of the movie board. And one of the things that made gangster movies so popular in the 30s was they banned a lot of things that were bad things for people to do. So you couldn't drink. You couldn't hang around with loose women. You couldn't do any of these sort of stuff in the movies. Unless you were made to pay for it later. So the reason why gangster movies were so popular <laughs> is they could have these people do all of the terrible things that folks wanted to see and that were scandalous in the movies. They just had to die at the end. So you had lots of gangsters okay. who lived it up. They drank. They had the fast women. They had everything else. And then they died in some hail of gunfire at the end. The censorship office was Okay. Everybody in the theater got to see things that scandalized them and then have that moral superiority at the end that they got, you know, the bad guy got what was coming to him. And that's kind of what happens here. You know, Michael Sullivan at the end of the movie, he's still done a lot of bad things. He doesn't get to have the happy ending. He ends up dying. The son, and and as a note, I hate to tell you this, but I think you maybe didn't catch what happened to the aunt and uncle. Cause I,
0: I apparently did not. I mean,
1: why exactly is the kid wandering off to live with somebody else with their dog?
0: Oh yeah. I I, I guess I suppose (laughs) I, they, they, we didn't see the the bodies or anything like you did in the book, but I suppose it was kind of intimated because there was basically nobody there that, yeah, they, that, that he probably did take. I'm
1: afraid they, they weren't just not home. Dwayne, I, I think something bad yeah, may have happened yeah. to him. So, um, <laughs> but because of that, yeah, he, he wanders off and he goes back to the, the other place that was put into the movie specifically for this, I suppose, when Michael Sr. is, is shot, they stop at this farm. The, the, the people who live there say, well, they take the bullet out and they take care of him, And then they're like, yeah, we don't have any children. That would have sure been nice. And they leave him a bunch of money and take off. And then at the end of the movie, that's where Michael returns to, Michael Jr. Also, which is why it's kind of questionable whether he ends up being a priest in the, in the movie. Because it was probably partly being put into the Catholic orphanage that sort of moved him on his path towards the priesthood as well. Yeah, so... So I think one of the thing
0: we should talk about real quick was the cinematography for this because there oh, is some absolutely gorgeous shots throughout this film, um, and actually, uh, the uh, Conrad Hall, who was the cinematographer for this film, actually won an Academy Award for this. Sure, uh, actually won it posthumously. Because he died shortly before the 75th Oscars in, in 2003. I think about the scene in the rain where Sullivan takes out John Rooney and his men as they're walking to their car. I'm thinking about the shot as he's going into Chicago for the first time. There are just some absolutely gorgeous shots that, that are made in this film that are, that are so memorable. And, and I think are just so beautiful looking, the, the way they just sort of frame the actions, frame the background, give you just this sense of awe and wonder, I guess, of everything that's going on. yeah And even Little Things, they, ta- I, they talked about, uh, you know, trying to show distance. And like at the beginning of the film, you see Michael Jr. and Michael Sr., all the shots of those two are far apart and it was supposed to be showing the distance between those two characters Mm -hmm. because Michael senior had this wall. And then once they kind of go on the run, they kind of have to be open up to each other and they're talking more and they're, they're sitting close to each other and they're framed really close on the screen. And it just, it, it's subtle but yet it makes just this huge difference when you're when you're watching when you're watching it it's subconsciously you're picking up things that that you might even not even realize that you're that you're picking up yeah
1: and this guy was he was one of the greats in hollywood you know it's it's not like when he died he was in his 70s so he kind of like it it's interesting that him and and paul newman had this as their final film because if you look back through his his sort of film history, he actually did many of Paul Newman's greatest films. He was director of photography on Harper. He was director of photography on Cool Hand Luke. He was director of photography on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So he's kind of been working with Newman, you know, over a forty or fifty year period. And this is sort of both of their last film. Both of them nominated for an Academy Award. One of them wins it. But yeah, the, a lot of the, the the interesting thing that I think you can say is it was a film that was shot in color that sometimes if you think about it in your mind, it's almost like it was black and white because he's got such a, a masterful use of like shadows and darks and, and some of the rain scenes and stuff that it looks like. A black and white film in your mind when you think back on it even though it's in color and there's times it's got fantastic colors but there were a lot of scenes where if you if you remember almost like the the light cuts across people's faces and the like and you've got these these really interesting things going on and yeah it was it was really well done really well directed really well seen and, and some
0: and and s- And some of it was actually kind of pulled directly from the book as well. So like the shot of going into Chicago very much looked like some of those first panels going into Chicago as well. So like not only did it just look brilliant from a movie standpoint, it was like a brilliant adaptation because they took a lot of what was, or you know, some things that were in the graphic novel and brought them to life in the film.
1: I think that's that's absolutely true, and and again, in some cases, I think that was a little easier because Rainer's panels, some of them really looked like they would be a perfect sort of source for a, a moving picture sort of storyboard.
0: Yeah, I I lo- I, I actually I really liked this film. I, I was I was actually surprised at how much I liked this film when it when it was all said and done because again, I'm not big into this this type of story a gangster movie that that sort of thing but it, it was just so excellently done and in fact tom hanks i was reading an article thinks it's a tragedy no one remembers this mm-hmm. movie because because he says a lot of times for what for whatever reason a lot of people don't think about this as one of his best films and he he in fact goes he, he says in this the, an article For one reason or another, no one references Road to Perdition, and that was an incredibly important movie for me to go through. It was shot by Conrad Hall, okay? It has Paul Newman, and you have me, Don Mustache, with a hat on it. And you also have two guys who turned out to be two of the biggest motion picture presences in the history of the industry in Jude Law and Danny Craig. And I kill both of them, he says. Uh, you know, you talked about the Academy Award, uh, nom, you know, nominations that this got. It was, it was, just, just something. We talked about the kind of the who's who and yep. the cast. It, it, it was, it was such a good yeah. film.
1: And I mean, it's you know, the the director as well. It's, it's not like he was exactly a piker. You've got somebody there who, over the next couple of years, is going to win. I think he wins the Academy Award just a couple of years from now actually for American Beauty uh he's got other things
0: yeah um that actually he just came it off right of before that. it so American Beauty came out in 19 American Beauty came out in 1999 and and Sam Mendez was kind of uh the talk of Hollywood I guess after that and and there was a there was a uh, comment about this. Saying that you know one of the things he liked about this film was is it, it it was kind of in direct contrast of American Beauty. That one was very sort of word heavy, very monologue driven, where it, very dialogue driven anyway. And and this one, surprisingly, few yep. words. And and there was it was it it basically it, it the the pictures told a lot of the words, and and I think. The direction that that he provided in this uh ended up being yep. very you know, to to took a good screenplay and a good graphic novel and kind yep. of elevated it. But
1: didn't really change it that much, like you said. I mean, it's still it's still the bones are there. But it is interesting how I mean, yeah. even even talking about it sometimes um Max Allen Collins talks a little bit about the fact that. You know, for the most part, it stayed faithful to the screenplay that he actually helped to work on and things like that. But there, there were a lot of things that once the movie was done, when Mendez went through and made his cut, it changed a lot of things. And he actually wrote a novelization of the movie, which is essentially him writing the novelization of the movie based on his original script. Or his original comic. <laughs> and yeah. Scholastic, or whoever it was, the uh, whoever had the property, said that it had to have only stuff that was in the movie. So he wrote like a, I think he said like a, an 80,000 word book. And it got toned down to like 40 some thousand words. And he calls it, um, he says he thinks of it as the junior Scholastic version of his story essentially because they just took it and sucked it all down. But what a weird feeling uh, that you wrote the original story and then now you're having to make an adaptation that stays in the lines of what someone else has done when they adapted you first.
0: Sure. So do you have any more things that you specifically want to talk about or that were like problems with the with the movie or anything?
1: or No, I don't I don't really think there were any problems. I love the graphic novel and I loved the movie and they were different. And I think that's perfectly reasonable.
0: All right. So we've gone through the book. We've gone through the movie. I want to give some tidbits like we normally do for the movie. Some things about the film that I think are are really interesting. And the first was the piano piece that Paul Newman and Tom Hanks play at the opening funeral was actually performed by them. So like of course not only are they fantastic actors but they also you know can play the piano as well so talk about you know all sorts of talent um, the iconic shot of the sullivan's driving into chicago involved 120 period piece cars on a quiet sunday morning into chicago's main thoroughfare So they Is hatch- that
1: is that the one with the bridge with the bridge and all the cars I was- in there I was wondering about that when I saw it. I'm like, this doesn't look like it's CGI or whatever, but how could they no. possibly have done that? No. That's, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: So we talked about the Maguire character, and and strangely enough, that is actually, that character is based on a real-life photographer named Arthur Ouija Thelig, a famous crime scene photographer from the 1920s and 30s who was licensed to possess a scanner radio that allowed him to listen to frequencies used by police and fire departments, which enabled him to arrive by car to crime and fire scenes sometimes before the authorities did as if to be informed by telepathic powers, which is how he got his corruption of a Ouija board. Ouija as, as a nickname. He actually sold these photos to tabloid newspapers. The photos in McGuire's apartment in the movie are some real 1930s crime scene photos, some of which were actually taken by Arthur Felig. So that is... It makes it even more creepy to know that some of those were... were Now that
1: is really weird. Yeah. That's kind of freaky.
0: Um, Wow. So regarding tom hanks getting added uh get signing on to this film it was interesting he was sent a copy of the graphic novel by steven spielberg while he was filming filming the movie castaway he was initially too busy to make sense of the story and but he later then received david self's adapted screenplay to which he became attached hanks who is a father of four children described michael sullivan's role the michael Sullivan role as i just got this guy if you're a man and you've got offspring emotionally it's devastating and in fact tom hanks's son chet says this is actually his favorite performance of his dad's saying that in every one of his of tom hanks's films he can see his dad he's just being himself he says but in this role It is the farthest from his normal self out of any movies he's ever done. And he said he just really appreciates that. Uh, Cool. Yeah. Tyler Hoechlin, who played Michael Sullivan Jr., actually was kind of the winner of a nationwide 2,000 candidate search for the character of Michael Sullivan. The actor was 14 years old at the time of filming. And uh, he actually did not know how to drive a car, and so for the scenes in which Hoeklin's character was being assisted by, you know, learning to drive, and and some of the the scenes where he's actually driving, there is a uh, driving instructor in the back seat of the car to kind of help protect him so that something bad didn't happen while he was while he was filming filming the scene, and. Uh, one last thing, Jude Law as Maguire, He does this trick with the with the with the coin, running it up and down his fingers. He actually worked with a, with a magician to learn how to lace the coin through his fingers, so that he could do it during the film. Huh. Cool. Yeah. So so some some interesting tidbits about the movie. Dan, do you have some some references to to the graphic novel? specifically from from the movie that you wanted to point out
1: i guess the main thing is that these were relatively unusual like getting road to perdition made being a full form comic book in essentially book form published out you know as as essentially a a single instance graphic novel this was not something we've hardly ever seen in western publishing and it's very cool that it got made. It also, unfortunately, was not something that happened a lot. This was a part of a, a publishing attempt that kind of uh, started and failed. And the best thing that came out of it was that it got option for a movie. A lot of the others in the series were also good stories, but didn't really go anywhere. The we do have a superhero connection in this in this uh, particular. Movie. I don't know if you've seen Tyler Hoechlin in Superman and Lois, but he, for the last few years, has been Superman on the CW, actually. Oh, so, really? I did not know that. Yep. So he, it is It is a comic book movie in more than one way. We've, we've got our connection there. And in terms of the overall sort of setup of the book, where it's a guy and his son wandering around committing crimes and, and the like, essentially bad babysitter type behavior. Max Allen Collins actually got the idea for this or credits, at least part of the idea for this book to an, a Japanese series called Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a long running and incredibly successful manga series that has uh, been reprinted as well in America. And yeah, so this was actually first published way back in the 70s but it came to america for the most part in the late 80s and the 90s through dark horse comics they actually reprinted them in serialized form and one of the brilliant things that they did was got frank miller who was a fan of the series to do the covers for all of them which was why a lot of us bought it was because oh frank miller cover he's attached to it somehow and we started reading it and fell in love with the series so I have a number of them. I think it's Dark Horse. Could have been first. I, I can't actually even entirely remember which publisher it was now. But um, I, think, I think mine were first comics. But Dark Horse printed some of them as well. In any case, it's a similar series where you've got a sort of this masterless samurai who's wandering around and he has this baby with him. So he's kind of like pushing a stroller and slaughtering people all through his issues and all sorts of fun. All right, so with that doing, we come to the face-off. So, I got to tell you, we've got some good options this time. I'm interested to see what you come up with. Road to Perdition, the graphic novel, 300 pages of violence and black and white art. Road to Perdition, the movie, two hours of brilliant cinematography, telling much the same story which one of these came out on top for you this week i i i like the graphic novel
0: i i like it a lot actually a lot more than i expected i would like it There's i don't like so where
1: this is going Dwayne. i just have to tell you no i don't going, like where this going is going
0: you, it's going where you think it's going which is to say it, it's got a great story I think there was just a like, I think the fact that the movie then takes and expands on some of those relationships and and gives some of it a little bit more air than it got during the actual book. The fact that the cinematography is just spot on, the fact that they've got these actors and actresses that are, you know, really fantastic in the, uh, you know, at their craft. I have to go with the movie and I, as I'm also not a big violence fan in, in like movies or, or anything really. And so some of the fact that some of the violence is toned down, it's off screen a little bit as well, just makes it a little bit more easy to digest. And I think actually the movie helped me appreciate the book more. And, and so with that, I have to give the movie the nod.
1: That's all very well stated. And I can't say much, because Road to Perdition is a fantastic film. I really do wish, kind of like Tom Hanks, I wish more people actually, number one, know about or remember and appreciate this film, and number two, realize this is a comic book movie, which is kind of the whole point of this week's podcast, to say, look what fantastic movies you can make out of some of these graphic novel and comic book sources, because this is a you know, an Academy Award winning movie that was based off of a graphic novel. So I love Road to Perdition, the book, and I'm going to pick it though because I like the ending better. Even though you don't know kind of who the guy is, I think part of it, that that just random violence element of the ending for a guy who'd lived his life through violence makes sense to me. I like that it doesn't take the easy way out in terms of the kid that somebody who's in the world with all that violence gets to a certain extent his hands dirty with the violence even if his dad doesn't want him to that he does you know we see kind of at the end that he's had to find a way to try and find his way back from this a lot of the in in some ways i think the movie takes the the simpler route the more Hayes code route to a lot of these things, where there is a lot of what happens in the graphic novel that is muddier. Everybody has their hands dirty. You know, in, in the movie, Paul Newman's character, Michael Jr., they both come out of it looking pretty good in terms of their motives. And in the book, neither of them is is quite as clean. So, right, love them both. But I do think that yeah. partly because I love the, the comics and I love black and white comics and I love Max Allen Collins, you know, his stuff from the Ms. Tree mysteries of the of the eighties and onward, I've been a big Max Allen Collins fan. I'm gonna I'm going to defy you and take the comic book, even though I have to admit it's a pretty spectacular movie and picking against it is probably putting me on the the wrong side of most polls. So there we go. Uh. That's,
0: that is quite right. That's why we do, that's why we do this. That's why we do the face off. So let's look ahead to next week. Where are we going next? We've got a, we've got a big movie premiere coming up in a
1: couple weeks. Back, uh, back to the long underwear types, Duane. back to our primary mission. We are heading into what I'm now assuming is the main stuff you're going to need to know to understand kind of the plot line of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And I'm betting on the idea that there's going to be a lot of High Evolutionary, a lot of Warlock, and a lot of sort of this whole idea of the New Earth and some of the the High Evolutionary's creations and the like. So we're going to take a look at Thor 134 and 135, which follows right at the end of the Ego Stories we read a couple of weeks ago. That will be the first appearance of the High Evolutionary. We're going to look at some Tales to Astonish, where we've got a Hulk story, where he goes in and interfaces a little with the the High Evolutionary. We're going to look at Marvel Premiere number one and two, and Warlock number one through eight. And all of that together actually should give you a pretty good idea of what's going on when we get into the movie. Unless I'm horribly wrong, in which case I apologize to you. (laughs) And we won't know for another couple of weeks yet. So.
0: Yes. No, that's, that is interesting. There is definitely some, we, you've wet my appetite for Adam Warlock and, and some of the, some of the stories there a couple of weeks ago. And I'm kind of intrigued as to where this goes next and, and really interested in seeing where this, what appears to be the final guardians of the galaxy movie is going to take us and, it does seem like there's going to be some finality to that. Uh, if you're if you've seen some of the trailers and stuff, some of the images in there, uh, could be could be quite the quite the finish to that story. So I am very much looking forward to seeing some comic books to help get me ready for that. Excellent. And with and with that, we are going to wrap it up for us for this week. Thank you for sticking around as we kind of went through both. A, graphic novel and a comment and a movie this week so we're a little bit longer than normal we'd like to thank you for joining us if you're new to the podcast please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice that way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning we'd love to get your thoughts on the show or say road to perdition if you read the graphic novel or saw the movie I, I would note by the way we did talk about uh, road to perdition leaving Netflix at the end of April it's still going to be on Paramount plus so if you have paramount plus you'll still be able to see it there if you if you're looking for a place to stream it uh, that said if you have some comments you want to send to us you can send them to us via email that address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can reach out to us via Twitter we are at comics over Dan I I'm looking forward to Guardians 3. I'm looking forward to these comic books and and I am I'm very intrigued about the High Evolutionary because I I he seems like a very interesting character. Yeah.
1: Yes, he definitely is. He's been someone that I, I was intrigued by the comics of for most of my life. I've always enjoyed finding uh, things of things about the the High Evolutionary and his crazy planet. Wanted to note, by the way, kind of to follow up on Dwayne, we did try something a little different. If you do like this, or if you really don't like the fact that we're wandering off onto non-Marvel or non-superhero stuff, let us know. I'd love to get an email from you just uh, with a little bit of an idea of whether you think this is a direction we should be looking more at or avoiding or whatever. So,
0: Yes, definitely let us know twitter or via email and and we will definitely uh keep that in mind as we look to to plan out future episodes so with that until next week take care everybody have a great one folks